Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and at his home in Vancouver is my good friend Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Michael. How are you today? Well, as you know, we've spent a bit of time talking about this case in advance, and I'm riled up. <laughs> yeah, Matthew's wound up, uh, and, and I knew he would be, because I am too. These guys were uh, a little older than me, obviously. If 1970, I was only one. Yeah. But they come from my home stomping grounds, you know, so I kind of really relate to this case in a big way. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to Dark Poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. On Friday, July 10, 1970, around 7 a.m. near Ludlow, Maine, 45 kilometers from the border with Canada, the crew aboard a northbound Bangor Aroostook railway train noticed something lying on the tracks ahead. They thought at first it might be trash, but reacted quickly regardless. Despite the immediate application of the brakes, the locomotive towing 19 heavy boxcars could not stop in time to avoid a collision. The objects on the tracks were sleeping bags containing three young males. All appeared to be in their teens or early twenties. The bodies were found without official identification, and among them they carried just over five dollars in Canadian cash. After a brief investigation, the Aroostook County Sheriff, Darrell Crandall, said he considered the deaths either accidental or a group suicide pact. The young men were soon identified as Kenny Novak, 15, and David Burroughs, 17, both from Sydney River, and Terry Burt, 20, of Whitney Pier in Sydney, Nova Scotia. It was discovered that they had hitchhiked to the location, but they were a long way from home. Their families initially had no idea why they would cross the border. They expected them to be camping somewhere else. There were no indications that any of the three were suicidal. 
Why were they there? If their deaths were accidental, how had they not heard the train approaching? And why would they have chosen to sleep on the train tracks? Over the years, information has come to light that there may have been a darker reason for their journey, leading to speculation that the three might have been murdered and placed on the tracks to make their deaths appear accidental. Their families and friends are still looking for answers. This is Dark Poutine Episode 307, Three on the Tracks, Kenny Novak, David Burroughs, and Terry Burt. July 10, 1970 was a calm, clear morning. It had rained overnight. The fields were still wet, but the skies were now blue. The sun had risen at 4.56 a.m., and the temperature was a brisk 62 degrees Fahrenheit, around 17 Celsius. A Bangor Aroostook railway line train was headed north from Oakfield to Houlton, Maine, blowing their whistle at every crossing. It was a regular, routine run for the crew, until it wasn't. As the heavy train rounded a bend between Smyrna Mills and Ludlow, the engineer, Earl Cappen, and the train's fireman, Ralph Fowler, saw something on the tracks. They initially thought it was rubbish, perhaps the remains of a rubber raft. It was too late when they realized what they were looking at were sleeping bags in between the tracks and parallel to the rails. They blew the whistle continuously, and the train's brakes were immediately deployed. Only 150 feet, 46 meters, remained between the train and the objects on the track when the crew desperately tried to stop the lumbering behemoth, traveling at its typical speed of 40 miles, 64 kilometers per hour. The brakes screamed, steel on steel, sparks flew, but it was too late. The crew's stomach sank as momentum carried the train over the sleeping bags. The crew later said that they could see no movement from the bags before the train rode over them. The train's caboose came to rest a few hundred feet beyond the obstruction. Sickened and hoping the sleeping bags had been empty, the crew jumped down from the train and ran back to survey the scene. They were met with a horrific reality. Can you imagine just another day on the job, you know, Mm. get up in the morning, make your lunch, put it in your little lunch box. Kiss the kids. You're going to do the day and then come back and, and you come across this. It, it would have to be particularly difficult to handle. Mm-hmm. These aren't EMT workers. These are guys on the railroad, you know? Yeah, exactly. While some accounts paint a picture of the carnage with items strewn all over the nearby landscape, others describe it as being limited only between the tracks and nearby, but over 100 feet from the point of impact. Lorne Novak, elder brother of the youngest of the three, said he was told the incident was bloodless. This sounds odd, but I spoke with my friend Stacy Thur, Daniel of Exmum, as she's a seasoned railway worker, about her experiences with train-related fatalities. Without prompting, she told me that some scenes had been oddly bloodless on a few occasions, counter to what a layperson might assume. However, she also said that after several messy incidents, the railroad hired a water truck to spray down the underside or front of the locomotive. In this case... There were two bodies immediately obvious. According to Lorne Novak's interview with podcast host Jason Herbert, the third body was soon discovered, tangled in the train's undercarriage, having been dragged after the collision. The crew radio dispatch who notified the local law enforcement, Aroostook County Sheriff Daryl Crandall at 7.05 a.m. Police attended right away. Three bodies were clearly deceased. Oddly, 
No official identification was present anywhere at the scene. Uh, maybe oddly. I mean, in 1970s, I, I don't think a 15-year-old or 17-year-old necessarily carry ID with them. Maybe, maybe the older boy would have been. He was 20. Yeah, we get into it later. Um, yeah. Obviously, the 15-year-old probably wouldn't have had ID. Yeah. But the 17-year-old and 20-year-old were people who would have had identification. Why it wasn't with them is another question. Who were these guys? Among clothing items and shredded sleeping bags, distinctly Canadian goods were strewn around the scene. Canadian cigarettes, Canadian branded food items, and a small amount of Canadian money, just over five bucks. Sewn inside one of the sleeping bags was the name Terry Burt. That was a lead. Another came through a letter in the of clothing found at the scene. There was an address, 54 Connaught Street, Sydney, Nova Scotia. The RCMP was notified and officers were sent to knock on the door of the address found. All three victims were soon identified. They were Terry Burt, 20, of Whitney Pier in Sydney. The others were Burt's friends. Kenny Novak, 15, and David Burrow, 17, both from Sydney River. Their families were shocked, not only to hear of the deaths of their sons, but of the location. Maine? That wasn't possible, but here they were. All three dads made arrangements to go to Holton to identify their sons' bodies. Yeah, my heart really breaks for the families here. At first, you're getting this phone call out of the blue. Mm-hmm to hear that your child is dead. Yeah. And then you have the confusion of why the heck they were so far away. Yeah. Right? And you're trying to connect those dots. Yeah. And then having to take that horrible journey to to identify your son, that must have felt like the longest bloody journey in the world for, for, the, for their dads. Just terrible. Cape Breton journalist Ken Jessam, who knew the three victims as a youngster, later reported that police from Aroostook County Sheriff's Department, including Sheriff Darrell Crandall and Deputy Sheriffs Russell Sokoby and Glenn Philbrick, arrived at the scene. Jessam wrote that the officers were initially puzzled by the apparent decision to sleep on the tracks. However, the officers deduced that overnight a heavy rain shower in the Smyrna area had left the tracks drier and presumably more comfortable than the wet ground nearby. This theory was extended to explain why the boys did not wake up at the train's approach. They likely had covered their heads with their sleeping bags to protect against the rain, leading to their tragic failure to detect and respond to the oncoming danger. To the officers, the incident highlighted unforeseen circumstances and tragic misjudgment. Many others have said the boys would not have done this. But seriously, Mike, if the police think these three young men decided to sleep on a train track. Right. Yep. I find that highly, I know we're just getting into this, but highly unlikely. Yeah. I mean, you know, trains were active in those days and everybody knew that. There's no way 15, 17, and 20 did not know that. Let's sleep on the train track. Right. Just, I, I just, I don't, I don't, I, I absolutely do not buy that. Things do not add up. No. By 7.25 a.m. on the morning of the incident, the medical examiner was notified, and the bodies were removed and taken to the Dunn Funeral Home in nearby Holton, where the autopsies were performed. Despite Lorne Novak's dogged efforts to obtain police reports, he's been told that none exist. Novak is unaware of any photos being taken at the scene, nor is there evidence that the fatalities were reported to the Federal Railroad Administration, which to this day is part of the process when dealing with train-related fatalities. 
I dug into this personally and I could not discover a report. As the information available on the database at the FRA's website dates back only to 1975, anything beyond is impossible to obtain. There is a longer report that includes fatalities in the 60s and early 70s, but these only cover at-grade crossings, both controlled and uncontrolled, and not incidents like the one that happened in Maine. Novak was unable to obtain death certificates and presumes that none were issued. This is very strange as the bodies had to be shipped internationally afterward to be taken home for burial. For official documentation, we have to rely on cell phone photos taken of the autopsy reports of the three bodies as seen on Lauren's Facebook group. In these reports, the bodies are identified by number out of deference to the families as the injuries were extensive both internally and externally. The autopsy report for body number one, quote, revealed multiple fractures of the base of the skull with extensive subarachnoid and subdural hemorrhage. The liver and spleen were also seriously severed. In addition, multiple fractures opened and closed and contusions were noted all over the body and internal organs. The report's conclusion for body number two was shorter, quote, the autopsy disclosed several damages in the head, ruptures of the spleen and liver, and contusions of the lungs. Body number three's report was even more brief. It stated, quote, The autopsy disclosed that the head, liver, and spleen were seriously severed. Each of the documents, released at the end of 1970, concludes, quote, This individual was one of three individuals who apparently went to sleep between the B&A railroad tracks just north of the Timoney Crossing in Ludlow, Maine, end quote. It continues, and this is in all caps, quote, The three were in sleeping bags and did not move as the train rounded the curve and came upon them. They were carried beneath the train as it tried to stop. The bodies were strewn along a hundred-foot section, well between the rails, and behind the last car a considerable distance after the train came to a halt. Still not buying it. Yeah. It's, they put it, just because they put it down on paper... The three were in sleeping bags, and they, they assume make, making it sound like they were asleep. It's just, I'm still not buying it. Mm -hmm. Blood and urine samples were gathered and sent off for toxicological analysis by chemist Michael C. Sedana at the Central Maine General Hospital in Lewiston. The results of the test were sent from supervising chemist Robert C. Erickson to Sheriff Crandall and Alfred A. Howes of the Maine State Police on July 16, 1970. All three victims had tested negative for the presence of alcohol and drugs. They had not been high or drunk when the incident occurred. The Aroostook County Sheriff's Department investigated whether anyone had seen the boys before their deaths. They discovered that on the evening of July 9th, three young men crossed the border near Holton, Maine, without notifying border control. Dean Rhodes reported in the Bangor Daily News, quote, About 11.30 p.m. Thursday, U.S. Border Patrolman William Butterfield of Holton attempted to stop three hitchhiking youths on Drake's Hill at Holton, but the three fled. Robert Falk, acting chief patrol agent of the U.S. Border Patrol's Holton office, said that Butterfield became ensnarled in traffic on Drake's Hill. While he turned around, the youths ran in different directions. End quote. Rhodes' report continued that Butterfield had tried to find the young men later using an unmarked car but didn't see them again. Uh, things were simpler in some ways back then, Mike. Yeah. 
you know, you could cross the border without getting shot at and just sort of duck and dive and get your get your way through, you know? Well, you didn't even need a passport. Yeah. Do you remember those days? Yeah, I remember those days. My parents would flash their, uh, even if they were asked for ID, if we went over the Ambassador Bridge uh, towards Detroit, you just sh- show your driver's license and, and usually just the driver's license of the driver of the car and nobody else had to. Right. Yeah. Those days are long gone. Whose children are those? That's the question that I remember mom and dad being asked, and, and they were like, oh, they're ours. Okay, go ahead. And were you like, lies, I'm adopted? Yeah. I get them oh. into trouble intentionally. Oh, no, I wouldn't do that. Like, or they're, they're, they're looking in the back seat, and you're shaking your head no and mouthing, save me. Oh, no. I'm sure there's kids that have done that. Hilarious. Later, at an ice cream shop near Drake's Hill in Houlton, about three kilometers from the Canadian border, 21-year-old Royden Hunt and his friend Mike York encountered the trio. When asked for a ride through town, Royden agreed, noting the mild weather and the disheveled appearance of the young men in their mid to late teens. Royden was driving his pal Mike to a graveyard shift at a gas station in the direction the boys were headed before heading back home himself to Island Falls. Police pulled into the parking lot of the ice cream shop shortly after they left and were told by friends of Royden Hunt that the three strangers had gotten into Royden's blue Pontiac Le Mans and driven off with he and Mike York. The officers looked for Royden's car but didn't find it that night. Years later, in an interview with Ken Jessam, Royden Hunt recounted his encounter with the three young men who declined a ride to downtown Holton, preferring to be dropped off at the Smyrna exit on Interstate 95 instead. During their journey, Hunt observed the boys' disheveled appearance and heard them mention they had crossed the border, with one explicitly stating they weren't carrying drugs. Upon reaching the Smyrna exit, the boys expressed their intention to travel along the railway tracks to avoid the roads. Hunt and his companion, Mike York, surmised the boys were evading Border Patrol, a theory supported by the trio's muddy and grass-stained clothing. Royden Hunt thoroughly cleaned his car the next day. Hunt was later visited by state police detectives, who looked thoroughly through Royden's car and found no evidence of the three young men. According to Lorne Novak, Royden Hunt's informal questioning by police was made at a local golf course and lasted only five minutes. Okay, so this is interesting. Mm -hmm. Go with my thinking here, Mike. Sure, I've got some around this too. Some critical thinking, right? Mm -hmm. Which which I don't think the police were doing at the time. No. Wouldn't you spend more time interviewing the last person Mm -hmm. who not only saw them, but who had them in their car? Right. And wouldn't the police be doing their jobs properly if they, mm, I don't know, maybe question why a car that had three now young dead men in it was clean the next day? Right. And it seems to me like more than a five-minute interview at a golf course should have been considered, even just to totally ensure that these men had, had nothing to do with it, so there's sure. no no long-term suspicion. We're not saying that they're no. guilty of anything, but yeah, clear them. Sloppy police work like that makes people live with suspicion over them for the rest of their life. As does the lack of forensics that happened at the scene. Yeah. Immediately... The sheriff and deputies just thought, okay, hippie kids who, you know, were dumb and stoned or whatever and decided to lay on the tracks to sleep to get out of the weather. And, uh, you know, they did not do any forensics at all. They just considered either a tragic accident or some bizarre suicide pact. Mike, do you think that 
it was because they were foreign kids. Sure, that probably factored into it. Or not local kids, that it just Mm -hmm. wasn't really their issue. Yep, I think that probably factored into it. They don't have to look in the eyes of the parents in the town that they live in on a daily basis, right? Yep, that coupled with the couple of the kids who were long-haired, hippie types, and yada, yada, yada. Lorne also claims that law enforcement and the Border Patrol maintained ambiguity over the boys' legal status and pursuit, with officials providing evasive responses when pressed for details. After being identified by their fathers, the bodies were placed in military caskets and shipped back to Sydney three days later. The Fillmore Funeral Home in Cape Breton hosted all three funerals. Who were these young men? At 20, Terry Burt was the oldest of the three, and the one we seem to know the most about. Terry W. Burt was born to Gordon and Jean Burt in Sydney, Nova Scotia on May 1, 1950. In an article from the Cape Breton Spectator, titled Remembering a Mysterious Summer of 70 Tragedy, journalist Ken Jessam and a few others specifically recounted their memories of Terry Burt. Jessam's reflections offer a poignant glimpse into the life and community spirit of Whitney Pier, Cape Breton, through the lens of the tragic loss of Terry Burt. Jessam, who admired Terry from a younger age, paints him as a thoughtful, John Lennon-esque figure, known for his serious demeanor, distinctive longish hair, and round glasses. Terry was older, but despite their age difference, Jessam felt a connection to Terry rooted in the vibrant youth culture of their neighborhood. Do you remember? Uh, I don't know about your neighborhood, Mike, but Mm -hmm. on Dominion Street where I grew up, there were around 40 children, Mike, 40, within Mm -hmm. two years either way of, of my age. Sure. 40. Yeah. And th- these were the days where parents would just like get out of the house and you'd be gone all day. It was like yep. Lord it was like Lord of the Flies out there. <laughs> <laughs> totally like Lord of the Flies. Our, my neighborhood was like that too. It, just around sort of where we grew up was probably the similar number of kids. I mean, we come from towns that are of similar size. Right. And and back then people tended to have more kids younger as well. So mm-hmm. mom and dad only had my brother and I, but most of the other families had Three or more kids. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, that that wasn't necessarily the case where I grew up. I mean, there was usually two, but there were some families with more. Yeah, some had four, some had five, some had three. Yeah, there are a couple with two, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Jessam described Whitney Pier as a tight-knit community where young people congregate at local hangouts, including the gym at the local Redeemer Parish Center, a focal point for social and recreational activities. Jessam's narrative brings to life the communal bonds that define their youth, emphasizing the shared ideals of peace and freedom. Jessam and others fondly remembered Terry Burt as a gentle, caring individual who advised against smoking and maintained a well-groomed, responsible lifestyle. Memories shared by friends and Terry's brief romantic partner, Rose Pendergast, further illustrate Terry's character as quiet, gentlemanly, and impactful. A cherished memory of Terry laughing with friends at a dance encapsulates the sense of community and joy that mark their interactions. Jessam's reflections conclude with a contemplation of the tragedy's lasting impact, highlighting the enduring grief and unanswered questions surrounding the loss of these young lives. Through his personal memories and shared experiences, Jessam crafts a touching tribute to the enduring legacy of Terry Burt and his peers within their community. According to Kristen Seavey's podcast, Murder, She Told, 
David B. Burroughs was born to James and Helen Burroughs on January 12, 1953 in Sydney, Nova Scotia. David maintained a more conservative appearance from junior high through high school, distinguishing himself from many friends with a more hippie-like style. Despite growing out his hair, which displeased his parents to the point of threatening eviction unless he cut it, David was seen as a free-spirited individual who was very open with his emotions. He was remembered fondly by those who knew him as a well-liked, easygoing person with a notable smile. Sharing her memories, a friend named Janice highlighted David's endearing qualities in their close friendship, noting that some considered him a hippie and David had left a lasting impression on her and her family. Kenneth Novak was born to Frank and Isabel Novak on February 12, 1955 in Sydney. Kenny was a tall, slender teenager with shoulder-length, light brown curly hair that often covered his face, leading him to brush it aside frequently. His friends described him as sweet, energetic, funny, contemplative, and thoughtful, making him popular among his peers, especially with the girls. He was adaptable and easily mingled with different groups. Karen, a friend, noted his preference for wearing a Burberry military-style jacket in winter and an army surplus jacket in the spring. His brother Lorne highlighted Kenny's intellect, mentioning his three years studying Latin. A memorable moment shared by a friend named Pat occurred at a dance when Kenny, energized by the song Mississippi Queen, danced on stage, causing their friend Terry Burt to laugh, a cherished memory of camaraderie and joy. The events around the five days between the deaths of the three young men are odd, and we'll get into those after a quick break. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts so far? A number of decades ago, my friend Jennifer, her brother and... I think it was four friends, and if you uh, if you knew these boys, I'm sorry. I, I was I only remember Jay because I knew Jay. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were leaving the um, the billiard hall and walking, taking the uh, shortcut on the train tracks, mm-hmm. and a train was coming towards them. So they stepped off, and as it was passing, they stepped back onto the track, not hearing that another one was coming behind them. Oh no! And I think three of them died. Mm-hmm. Jay died. I just I just remember Jay and the funeral because I was I I knew him since he was a a little little boy and yeah. um and it so and I I remember I grew up playing on train tracks right me too yeah. um uh you know under the railway bridge and putting mm-hmm. pennies on the tracks and yep. seeing if you could get the the conductor to like blow the whistle and waving mm-hmm. at the people sure. in the caboose yep all of that and and i've always had a love for trains um this was this is a horrifying uh time for um my fr- for my friend jen and her family and and us who knew jay uh for for that for for people to be hit like that. And so it's, you know, I wanted to say that sometimes 
like in that situation, you can understand how they didn't hear the train coming. They didn't know one was coming up behind them. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but you know, and it just makes me, it just makes me, you know, and people get hit by trains. Uh, but the the whole story that they, they were asleep on the tracks. I just don't, I don't buy it. Um, and you know, I've had unfortunate experience with people being killed by trains. Right. Yes. So there's some kind of hits in a way because, um, you know, I grew up, screwing around on the train tracks and had a friend's brother who died from it, right? Uh, One of my favorite songs of all time is a song called Trains by uh, a band called Porcupine Tree from the UK. Okay. And it is a beautiful song. It is just a beautiful song. It's the most played song on their uh, uh, Spotify list, but have a listen. What are they called? Porcupines? Porcupine Tree. It just captures the essence of a train whistle in the distance and the plaintive call of a train. Yeah, it's, it's really a great song, but I digress. Let's get back to this story. Okay. As far as we know, here's how Kenny, David, and Terry's last few days went. On July 5th, 1970, Kenny Novak's mom, Isabel, drove Kenny and his friend Terry Burke from their home in Sydney to Inganish Beach, a 134-kilometer trip. The boys had told Mrs. Novak they were planning to camp in the area for around two weeks and that Kenny would call her when they needed a lift home. Inganish Beach has been a common destination for young people and families in Cape Breton for years. In the 1970s, Inganish Beach, situated along the scenic Cabot Trail in Cape Breton Highlands National Park, Nova Scotia, was already recognized as a desirable destination for camping and outdoor activities. The area is known for its striking landscapes, combining rugged coastlines, pristine beaches, and lush highlands. During this period, camping at Inganish Beach would have offered visitors a chance to immerse themselves in the natural beauty and tranquility of the region. The beach with its mix of fresh and salt water due to a lovely beach facing the Atlantic Ocean and a freshwater lake on the other side, provided a unique environment for swimming, kayaking, and other water-related activities. Uh, There was such a, I mean, for most people, such a a feeling of freedom in the 70s. Mm -hmm. A lot more time was spent in nature. Outdoors. I love the outdoors. And moms dropping off kids to camp wherever for a number Mm -hmm. of days was commonplace. Mm -hmm. You know, we got dropped off to, like, camp for weekends when from the time we were like 12 years old. We just, mm-hmm. yeah, we're going to be here, going to pitch a tent and build a fire and try to catch fish. And then my parents would just leave us and yep. we'd be like, come pick us up in two days. Yeah. You know? And, and yeah. that's what these guys were doing. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently. Uh, well, we'll get into that as well. Hmm. The Cape Breton Highlands National Park, established in 1936, has long been a hub for outdoor enthusiasts, offering numerous hiking trails, picnic areas, and camping sites. In the 1970s, facilities were more basic than today's standards, focusing on the natural experience without many modern conveniences now found in campgrounds. Campers could expect to find designated sites with fire pits and communal washroom facilities, but with no emphasis on connectivity or luxury amenities. Inganish, as part of the broader Cape Breton Island community, would have also provided visitors with opportunities to explore local culture seafood, and the warm hospitality of the Maritimes. 
The area's rich Celtic heritage and stunning natural beauty have made it a beloved destination for generations. If you're going to go along the Cabot Trail, go in the fall. The leaves are beautiful. According to Ken Jessam, a friend named Alan Crawley joined Kenny and Terry in Inganish for his first camping trip, an experience marked by the struggle to set up a tent and the distinct taste of cold beans for breakfast. The group later expanded with the arrival of 17-year-old David Burroughs, whom Alan had never met. David suggested an impromptu hiking trip to the United States, spurred possibly by meeting girls from Boston and Washington, D.C. They dreamt up a wild adventure to visit them. While the other three thought it was a great idea, Alan declined. He must have repeatedly thanked his lucky stars that he didn't tag along. Here's where it goes sideways. They decided to do it. The boys briefly returned to Sydney before embarking on their journey, a fact unknown to Kenny's mother. She thought he was still at Inganish. David Burroughs sought out Margie Burke for her address, ensuring that they could reconnect upon his return. He put that address into his pocket. This exchange was one of the few indications of their planned journey as revealed through Margie's later communication with David's mother. The trio's hitchhiking adventure from Sydney to Holton, Maine covered 471 miles, 758 kilometers. During the trip, David phoned Margie, suggesting they were weary of travel, low on funds, and considering returning home. It's believed this call was made from a motel in Fredericton where they stayed on July 8th. This narrative from friends' accounts and brief interactions sheds light on the boys' final days and the sudden end to their ambitious journey. Kenny Novak's elder brother, Lorne Novak, seems forever scarred by the events that took his brother's life. During his interview with podcast host Jason Herbert, Lorne mentioned seeing bits of the sleeping bag still left at the scene when he and his family attended the month after the incident to see for themselves where Kenny had died and look into things for themselves. Lorne was upset that the cleanup was left to the railroad crew, not law enforcement, perhaps pointing again to officials' perceived lack of care. However, my research and conversations with railway employees indicate that this is standard practice, even after a fatality. Yeah, I mean, so... I know the rest of, of the story here because we read it together in advance. And yeah. I have to say that, you know, um, I was saying this to you before the show started. Like, I feel so much for Lauren and, and I feel so so much frustration. And I totally understand him being scarred by having to deal with that. And, you know, and I, and I think perhaps, Mike, it wasn't that, um, you know, perhaps maybe it wasn't that railroad crews have, like, clean up if mm-hmm. you will, but that um, three young men were dead and stuff wasn't taped. Like, I, I think nothing was really looked at properly before, quote, a cleanup happened is, is the frustrating part here, right? Lorne Novak later uncovered that there might have been another darker reason for the trip. According to Kristen Seavey on the Murder She Told podcast, Dan Smith, a friend of Kenny's, recounted to Lorne his intended participation in a trip aimed at making a significant drug purchase in the United States, a plan from which David Burroughs abstained. Due to an unexpected work schedule at CJCB at Cape Breton radio station, Dan had to withdraw from the trip. However, he met with Kenny beforehand to contribute $180 to their funds. Dan asserted that the group had amassed between $500 and $600 for their venture, 
leading him to firmly believe that their subsequent murder, if it was so, was linked to this planned purchase. He expressed his willingness to testify to these details under oath. First of all, I think it was murder. But secondly, Mm -hmm. that might not seem like a lot now, 600 bucks, right? Right. But in today's money, 1970, 600 bucks is like $4,700, which isn't to be sniffed at. No. And this begs the question, if what Royden Hunt later said was true, he said this apparently to Lorne Novak, that he thought the boys were counting a wad of cash in the back seat of his, as, as he drove them. Mm-hmm. If they did have cash with them at this point, mm-hmm. where did it go in just over six hours between Hunt dropping off the boys and the incident with the train? It couldn't have blown away. The day was notably windless. Again, there's no official police report available. It isn't clear whether this thread was ever followed or if the investigators were even aware of it. Lorne Novak has been trying to determine what happened since the incident occurred. He sent letters, emails, made phone calls, been to Maine, and talked to scores of people in the area about their memories. Through his ironically named Facebook group, Search for Answers, because he's not getting any from the powers that be, I discovered that Lorne's meticulous investigations have raised more questions than given solutions. This is where I'm really feeling for Lorne, and yeah. I want him to find answers, and you know, I'm, I'm getting frustrated just from doing one show with you on this, and I'm not even his the brother of one of the, one of the boys that died, right? So I can't imagine that. And, and with these things, you know, mm-hmm. if the police actually started looking at it again, maybe the maybe some answers are right in front of them. And I'm getting the I'm getting the feeling that that they haven't even potentially tried to bother to look. Right. One of the biggest questions Lorne's investigations uncovered is why on earth would the boys choose such a dangerous place to sleep as train tracks of an active railway line? None had a reputation for being particularly careless let alone downright stupid. Sheriff Crandall's assessment of the weather as a factor does not seem to add up, particularly as close to the incident site was a stand of trees, less than 10 meters away, that would have given excellent shelter for the night. Why had they not heard the train coming? Extended blasts of the whistle had sounded loudly at Timoney Crossing a quarter mile, 400 meters from the collision, and Lauren said that a man mowing the lawn at a cemetery three miles, five kilometers away, heard the blasts at Timoney Crossing, and then again moments later before the train ran over the boys. Had the boys been awakened by the Timoney Crossing blast, they'd have had 22 seconds to get off the tracks. When the train's crew saw them, the whistle was blown continuously, and the application of the train's brakes was a very loud screeching affair. Yet they did not move at all according to witnesses. It's unclear whether the sleeping bags had been zipped over their heads to avoid cool, rainy weather and the impending sunrise. Regardless, the amount of noise should have at least caused them to stir. Was it suicide? Well, there's no evidence that the boys had suicidal ideation at all, and more than one of them had made plans for the near future. There could be yet another avenue, Although we explain that bloodless train fatalities sometimes occur, Lorne Novak believes this might be a factor. Perhaps the boys did not die when the train ran them over. Maybe they were already dead. 
Lauren told podcaster Jason Herbert that, taking all these things together, he thinks perhaps the boys had stumbled onto a drug smuggling drop, were murdered elsewhere, and stacked on the tracks by someone local who knew when the train passed. Maybe Lauren is on to something. I really think Lauren is on to something. It's a perfect way to cover up a beating death, at least. Mm. If you beat someone to death, uh, have them run over by a train, it's going to pretty much cover up everything that, you know. Well, I guess you can tell if injuries are pre-mortem or post-mortem, or before death or after death, so. Who knows if they even looked at it. I don't know. I don't know if they did. Are they going to reopen this case? I don't think so. They should. I don't think they're going to. Let's make it an international incident, Mike. Well, it kind of was. Back to what Lorne was talking about. Drug smuggling between Maine and Canada during the 1970s was part of a broader pattern of illegal narcotics trafficking influenced by the geographical and socioeconomic characteristics of the region. The expansive, often remote, and poorly patrolled border between Maine and the Canadian provinces Notably, notably Quebec and New Brunswick, facilitated the smuggling of various contraband, including drugs. The main Canada border stretches across various terrain, including forests, waterways, and small towns, making it challenging for law enforcement to monitor effectively. Smugglers exploited these geographical features using secluded routes to transport drugs across the border. The vast rural areas provided cover, making it easier to evade detection. During the 1970s, the drug trade in North America saw significant shifts with increasing demand for marijuana, hashish, and later in the decade, cocaine. The broader areas between Maine and Canada were primarily used for smuggling marijuana and hash, sourced either from parts of Canada or transited through Canada from other countries. Smugglers employed a variety of methods to transport drugs across the border, including private vehicles, cars and trucks were commonly used with drugs hidden in concealed compartments, watercraft, the numerous lakes and rivers that straddled the border were utilized for clandestine crossings by boat, and I personally recall of people finding large bales of hashish in the ocean off the south shore of Nova Scotia during the 70s and 80s. An aircraft, Small planes dropped shipments in remote areas, exploiting the vast stretches of uninhabited land along the border. The 1970s posed significant challenges for law enforcement agencies in the United States and Canada due to limited resources, the expansive border, and smugglers' ingenuity. The period saw increased cooperation between U.S. and Canadian law enforcement, but the sheer scale of the border made it difficult to stem the tide of smuggling effectively. The smuggling operations impacted local communities in Maine and across the border. While some benefited economically from the illicit trade, the presence of drug smuggling and related criminal activities also brought increased law enforcement scrutiny and, in some cases, violence. The issues with drug smuggling in the 1970s contributed to broader discussions on drug policy and border security in both countries. These discussions eventually led to increased law enforcement resources and cooperation between the U.S. and Canada to combat drug trafficking, a trend that continued into the 80s and beyond. With the illicit drug trade also come some unsavory characters willing to kill to protect their source of income and keep themselves out of jail. This was all so unnecessary. Right. The, the war, like, on an episode we did about the history of Prohibition, 
right? For on cannabis prohibition, yeah, yeah, and on prohibition that actually, you know, is on drug prohibition, but it was really became on cannabis prohibition, right? Yeah, and in, yep. in, in a lot of ways, that's where most of the busts were made. And mm-hmm. All of this death and destruction and lives lost and money spent on stopping people from buying or selling some weed. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, just yep. such a waste. Listening to Lauren Novak speak about his brother's death is heartbreaking. It's clear he resents investigators who he claims did not do enough investigation at the time of at the incident. Over the past 50 plus years, Lauren has tried to dig in and discover more about what happened, but has been thwarted at every turn. Even by subsequent law enforcement officials, including Sheriff Daryl Crandall's son, who went on to become sheriff after his dad. In 2010, Lorne had a homemade metal plaque with the names of the three victims and the date of their deaths that he wanted to be placed at the site of the incident. Mr. Novak was told this was impossible as the incident occurred on private property. Lorne's ire was further fueled when Aroostook County Sheriff James P. Padmore accidentally cc'd Lorne Novak in an email meant for a colleague. In that email regarding a request for information, Padmore wrote, quote, This should end our problem with Mr. Novak. Although Sheriff Padmore later apologized the damage was done, an already shaky relationship was shattered. We haven't seen police reports. It's very old. Because they don't exist, I don't think. And so so a few things, this raises a few things for me, right? Mm-hmm. If he thought that the police did a shoddy job in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's now dealing with the son of the person who is responsible for the shoddy job. Later, other people who, yeah. Right, and then others, which it's just sort of like, he's, it's hard to get anywhere because nobody, you know, how hard is somebody going to look into whether or not their dad screwed up? Right. Yeah. Every, and, you know, these guys probably think he's just unwilling to let go and we need to just, you know. Yeah. And this, and I also think that some, you know, I used to have this saying, like, don't put anything in an email about somebody that you wouldn't say to their face. Right. Because you never know when you accidentally copy somebody. Mm-hmm. Accidentally copying him on that, that just shows uh, what they think of it, that he's a problem. They don't give a shit at all. No. They don't, they don't care. They don't care. They just want him to go away. Lorne Novak seethes at the lack of care given to his deceased brother and his friends. He told Jason Herbert that the boys wore their hair long, and a couple were bearded. Perhaps they were seen as less important by the squares and law enforcement. As we know, the Vietnam War was raging at the time overseas, and back at home, the hippies were at war with what they perceived as the evil establishment. The two sides did not like each other very much. The local police might have considered them border-jumping hippie stoners. From moment one, it seems that the Aroostook County authorities assumed the events were an accident or a group suicide pact, and thoughts of foul play were not considered. Was it laziness, ineptitude, or bias that led to their inaction? Maybe it was a mixture of all. This lack of clarity and official disinterest underscored the unresolved nature of the boys' presence in the area and the circumstances leading to their tragic deaths on the railway tracks, leaving a gap between law enforcement's public statements and their actions behind the scenes. Well, what the heck happened? Maybe someone knows more. If you do, please contact Lorne Novak via his Facebook group. So this story, interestingly, 
is not the only strange unsolved story involving a train and the deaths of youngsters. And this one I'm about to tell you is very, very similar. There are many train fatalities yearly in the United States. Reported incidents at crossings in 1970, for example, resulted in 1,440 deaths, right around the nationwide average for the 20-year period around then. One incident in 1987, which has eerie similarities to this story, stands out. According to an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, in the early hours of August 23rd, a cargo train in Bryant, Arkansas, tragically ran over two boys, Don Henry, 16, and Kevin Ives, 17, who were found lying motionless on the railroad tracks. Despite the engineers' efforts to stop the train, the boys were killed instantly. Initially, the state medical examiner ruled their deaths as accidental, attributing it to a marijuana-induced sleep. However, the boys' parents, particularly Larry Ives, refused to accept this explanation, leading to a deeper investigation. The boys, described as typical teenagers who enjoyed working on cars and hunting, had left a local gathering to go spotlighting, an illegal form of night hunting along the railroad tracks behind Don's house. We called it jacking back in Nova Scotia. When their bodies were discovered, they were lying parallel to each other, partially covered by a light green tarp that was never found, raising questions about the circumstances leading to their presence on the tracks. Subsequent investigations prompted by the parents' persistent efforts and a press conference led to the exhumation of the boys' bodies and a second autopsy. This autopsy revealed that they had consumed far less marijuana than initially claimed and showed evidence that one boy was already dead and the other unconscious before the train's impact, indicating foul play. The case was then reclassified as probable homicide. You know, good for them for being tenacious and, and, and getting that changed. Why aren't we seeing this in this particular case? That's what I wanted to say. Like, I, I, I kind of wish that Lauren would at least get maybe probable homicide um, would actually give Lauren something. You yeah. know what I mean? Something. Because. But how do you prove that? How do you prove that now? Yeah. How do you prove it? But to me, it's from what you've written here. It's pretty obvious mm. for me. There you, you go. Um, it, it's pre- like, I'm just 100% not going to buy that they were sleeping on train tracks, which therefore, me, and, and there's they weren't suicidal. It, it was homicide. I'm calling it Mike. It was homicide. There you go. <laughs> Matthew. Matthew Matthew's calls magic it. ball, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so further intrigue arose around the reports about this other case of a mysterious man in military fatigues seen near the tracks both a week prior and on the night of the boys' deaths, although he was never located. Additional evidence, including analysis of Don Henry's T-shirt, suggested he had been stabbed before the train incident, leading to the official ruling of their deaths as definite homicides. Mm. This case remains a disturbing example of a probable crime masked as an accident, highlighting the significant failures in the initial investigation and the relentless pursuit of truth by the family's victims. And again, I ask, why is this case with three young men who knew what was what, sleeping on train tracks? Come on. Yeah, I think it's, again, I think it's foreign boys, hippies, mm-hmm. 
shoddy job by a sheriff. Uh, then uh, sheriff dumb eventually goes to the son of the shoddy jobster, um, yeah. and he's never going to see uh, uh, victory in this. Uh, you no. can't have you can't have a victory in it. It's not the right word. Closure. If I were Lorne Novak, I'd be angry too. Yeah, I'm angry for him. So, Lauren, if you listen to this, I hope you did a good job for your brother and, and the other two, and um, we're with you, and uh, we hope that somehow we've helped. And that's it for Dark Poutine, episode 307. Three in the tracks, Kenny Novak, David Burroughs, and Terry Burt. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Pulling back the curtain a little bit, Matthew and I are recording in a more compressed timeline, so uh, we don't have any phone calls to get to. But here is the information about how to call us. And please do. We'd love to hear from you. Really, really, really. We want to hear more from our folks. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 327 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. And we also don't have any patrons or donut money donors to speak of, so hey, hey, you can do that too. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it for this episode of Dark Poutine. So until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye. Bye. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now, she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. 
better, but still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elsbeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.